Good morning. morning. We uh, continue, as Scott said and as Mike said, with this series on overflowing. And the idea behind that is that uh, God has things that are seen in the life of Jesus and that are taught by Jesus, which he wants to pass on to us, and he wants to pass it on to us so that we'll be in a position to pass it on to others. That's the simple idea, that you and I are both recipients and givers, and that um, God has this desire for the things we see and hear in Jesus to be characteristic of us. And last week, we looked at the idea of uh, pursuing peace with all people so far as it's possible with us. And we, we acknowledged last week that the, uh, the number one roadblock, at least that I see in the scriptures and in real life to peace, is the grudges that we often hold or the unforgiveness that we often hold on to. Even as Christians, even as forgiven people, uh, it's not uncommon for us to maintain a barrier in our heart towards somebody. And so last week we looked at this idea that uh, Part of what he wanted to overflow was the grace of his forgiveness to us was meant to be a grace that moves on to other people. And, and this week we want to look at um, when we spoke about conflict or we, when we spoke about holding offenses, uh, we recognize that some offenses are things we just have to leave with the Lord and let him take care of. Um, but that we're not we're not designed to hold on to other people's wrongs. Uh, we're just not built for that. Um, and part of the reason for that is because our life is not our own. If you're a Christian, you've been bought with a price. Uh, you died with Christ. You were raised with him to a new life. And that life was meant to be free of holding things against people in the same way that Jesus' life was free of holding things against people. Now, that's not to say that we don't notice the offenses, and it's not to say that we don't address the offenses, and that's what we're gonna talk about today. What happens when there are offenses that maybe need to be dealt with? Yes, it's fine to know that we're not to hold it against them, but what are we supposed to do with them? That's what we're gonna look at today. You know, uh, years ago, almost 40 years ago, probably, I guess, 35 years ago, I read a book called Peacemaker by a guy named Ken Sandy. And in it, he started the book out with a really unusual and to me, brand new thought. He said, uh, are you using your conflict for good? And I just thought that was the weirdest question in the world. I mean, conflict's a bad thing. Why are you talking about using it for good? And he proceeded to quote a verse I knew, but that I'd never applied to conflict. It said in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you eat or whatever you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Well, I knew that verse. I knew that was something that was supposed to characterize my life. And I would have said that I think I was pursuing that. But when I read, is the conflict you're in something through which you're glorifying God. That stopped me in my tracks. 
Because up until then, my only thought was, am I winning the conflict? That's really all that mattered. You know, if somebody else can show me that what I'm doing is more wrong than what they're doing, fine. But if they can't, well, then let's talk turkey and you make sure you deal with yours, right? But this idea of glorifying God in conflict. And so today, when we talk about how to go to people, which is the focus of our time together, how to go to people when there is a conflict that warrants that, the question should be asked, how do we do that? How do we do that in a way that glorifies God? I remember in that same book, he quoted a verse that, you know, I'd read through the Bible a number of times by the time I had read this book, but I'd never remembered seeing this verse. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11 says, it is a man's glory to overlook an offense. Well, that was a new thought. I mean, that one of the ways to glorify God is to overlook an offense. When you're someone like me, kind of this Irish fighter, kind of, we don't overlook offenses. We deal with truth. But one of the ways to glorify God is actually to overlook an offense, and that was something I had to learn. Thank God for that. But Diane would say, if she were the one speaking, she would say, yeah, but there are some of us who run away from conflict at every turn. And she said, for me, learning to obey God required being willing to be invested in conflict. So we glorify God differently. And what we're going to look at today is a passage in the Gospel of Matthew that tells us specifically how we are to think about the difficulties and relational issues we have with other people and how to go about it. He gives us, he gives us uh, a lot of counsel in a very small section of Scripture. I'd like to read from Matthew chapter 7, if I may do that, in New American Standard, verses 1 through 6. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For the way you judge, you will be judged. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So, six verses from the mouth of the Lord Jesus in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, where he's teaching people how to apply his truth, how to live like he would have us live. And one of the ways he would have us live like he lives is how we deal with conflict with people. And the way that he is teaching us is something we'll see exemplified in him. Now, right off the bat, we read, do not judge so you'll not be judged. And it's interesting, those first three words, in my experience, I don't know about you, but people who maybe don't even know Christ yet, or people for whom Christ is not a major thought in their life, um, those are the, that's the portion of a verse that more people in the world have memorized than any other I know. I mean, you even hear it on television shows, well, one shouldn't judge. And you know they're quoting from this, right? 
but it's really interesting if you have a conversation with people about it and they say, well, you know, no one should judge. It's funny if you ever say, by the way, do you know how the rest of that passage goes? They don't. And it's the same for those of us who know Christ. A lot of times we know, well, I'm just not supposed to judge. But the reality is we are judging. And in fact, there's a place for judgment, as we'll see in this passage. In fact, in another passage in John chapter 7, in verse 24, Jesus says, don't judge according to appearance. Rather, judge with righteous judgment. So Jesus isn't saying don't judge, as in the types of judgment that have to be done when there is something too much to overlook, something that needs to be distinguished and something that needs to be addressed. He's not saying don't do that. What he's saying when he says in in that verse, don't judge so that you will not be judged, he's referring to passing judgment on someone. He's not talking about discernment. He's not even talking about uh, proper confrontation as we'll see this passage unfold. Um, What he's talking about is you are not in the position to sit as judge and jury as in kind of case closed. I can write them off because I'm able to put them into a place of judgment. Even in the passage we're studying, we can see that Jesus is not saying there is no element of judgment because we're going to see later in the passage, he's going to tell us, take the speck out of your eye. He's going to show us how to help take the speck out of our brother's eye. Well, that's going to require some judgment on our part, a type of judgment. But this word, this word judge, very simple Greek word, has a a kind of a broad meaning, and it can go everywhere from just comparing or contrasting or distinguishing, which is something we all do all the time. We're evaluating things all the way to, I pronounced you persona non grata. You're a person for whom there's no place. You're not welcome. I, I can write you off. And the word can include any of those. In this context, it's clearly more that that latter, that latter sense. So Jesus is not telling you and me to not distinguish. Rather, he's telling us what it requires if we're going to distinguish and what is needed if we're going to speak truth in a conflicted relationship. And when we see these next few verses, we're going to see it's exactly how Jesus does it. What he teaches in Matthew 7, 1 through 6, he models in the Gospels. The first reason Jesus says, is kind of interesting, he doesn't always do this with a verse. He doesn't always tell us the immediate benefit to us from not doing something. Sometimes he just says, don't do it. Or conversely, do it. And he doesn't always explain the immediate benefit. But he tells us here the the immediate benefit is, don't judge so you won't be judged. And what he means is, don't sit in a position of, thus saith me, you know, you're... You're judged by me because he says, if you do that, you will be under the same judgment. You're going to be judged by the same judgment. In fact, he says that even more clearly in the next verse, for in the way you judge, you will be judged by your standard of measure. It will be measured to you. See, it's interesting. None of us really want to be judged. We want grace. But 
we find it a lot harder to give that thing that we very much need from God. Uh, we all have shortcomings. Uh, she may spend too much. You might tend towards pride. He might be self-centered. You, you might be lazy. She might use language that dishonors God. You might not be gracious and kind to those who are in need. He may have walked away from his commitment to his wife and his children. And you might be hot-tempered and hold back from forgiving. Here's the thing. My tendency, and most probably, this is probably true for most of us, when I judge other people, I tend to judge them by my strengths. I don't very often judge people by my weakness because it, it would just so quickly come back on me. But when I judge somebody by an area of my strength and it's an area of their weakness, I can often put myself in that position of judge and jury, which is what he's told me not to do, because he's saying it'll be judged to you the same way, not on your strength. You're going to be judged by your weaknesses just like you're judging them on their weaknesses. He says in verse 3, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice the log in your own? And this is meant to be a, a, you know, very much of an image. It's meant to be a picture in our mind. Jesus is saying, why in the world, if you have a log in your eye, would you bother trying to help somebody else with a speck in theirs? I mean, think about it. Um, when you have something in your eye, and you know, we've all had a speck of something, a sawdust, or something gets in our eye, and it immediately stops everything you do. You got to find water. You got to flush it out. You don't just kind of keep going, oh, well, I got a speck in my eye, and my eye is really hurting. It feels like there's a dagger in there, and that's fine. I'm just going to keep driving. You know, you pull over, and you find a way to get it out, because that, that speck in your eye feels like a log. And Jesus is saying, why in the world would you be so quick to notice their speck when you have a log blocking your vision. Now, we're, we're not saying people really don't have things wrong. They really do. People really do wrong things. But, but what Jesus is getting at is, why is it that what they do is more important to you than what you do? Why is something that really should seem like a large thing to you, i.e. your log, why are you able to overlook that but not overlook their speck? I, I think what Jesus is getting at, and this is part of Christian ethic, which is the Sermon on the Mount, is all about how do you actually apply this life of Christ. What he's saying is, when, when he asks the why question, why do you do it? I think he's inviting me to answer the why question. And I, for me, it's something like this. I am more interested in him behaving in a way that conveniences me than I am in being sanctified. I am more interested in her not being an inconvenience or a source of pain or a source of sorrow, I am more interested in, in that not happening and me not going through that than I am in me becoming like Christ. So when Jesus asked the why question, the easy answer is, well, Lord, the reason I notice her speck and don't see my log 
is because my log doesn't bother me that much. Because becoming like Christ is further down my totem pole of importance. What's really high on my importance is I want her to behave in a way that I really want her to behave. I want him to not do the things he does that I don't like. Which, by the way, may be perfectly legitimate things to talk about. Or they may be things that need to be overlooked. I don't know which. Like I said earlier, I didn't know for a number of years as a believer, probably 10 years, I didn't know that it is a man's glory to overlook an offense. And so sometimes I'm not supposed to go there. I'm sometimes supposed to just let it lay. For Diane, similarly, for 15 years or more of her Christian life, she didn't know that there were times that walking into conflict is actually a way for God to get glory. But Jesus is saying here, for example, in verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, there's a log in your own. The point he's making is, when you're removing a speck from someone's eye, you have to be able to see clearly enough to do it. And the implication in verse 4 is you can't possibly see clearly enough to do it because you got this sucker sit, sitting right here, and it's blocking your vision. So it's a, this how question is meant to be a rhetorical thing. Well, I can't. And Jesus says, quite the point, you can't. Look at verse 5. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, Jesus isn't saying there isn't a place to go to somebody when there is an offense or a trouble or a sin. He's just saying don't try to deal with somebody else's until you've dealt with your own. Part of the reason is you can't see clearly enough to do it. He's already said that. But another part of the reason is this. If I have seen my shortcomings, if I have seen where I might be sinning, maybe that I didn't even know. Because remember, our hearts are deceitful. We really don't see a lot of our sin. In fact, that's part of the problem with this whole issue is I can see your sin, I just don't see mine. But what's interesting is, if I've taken the time before I talk to them to deal with my own log, and I become aware of my shortcoming, I am reminded when I go to God how I was saved by grace through faith, meaning God looked at me at my worst. He didn't wait for me to clean up my act. He said, come to me the way you are, because I already put all of your sins on the cross with my son, all of them. But wait, Lord, I need to polish things up. No, you don't. If you polish things up, you would be minimizing what he did. He went there for you at your worst. And he took all of your sins with him. But Lord, I don't deserve that quite. That's exactly right. Well, well Lord, then this is all about what you do and what I receive. Exactly. So when a person goes with their shortcoming to the God who did that for them already when they first believed the gospel they're able to know he's going to forgive me. I can bring this shortcoming to him. Lord, you know when I came to you, I mean, when I first came to know you, I was wandering away from you. But you brought me to yourself, yes. 
And so right now, Lord, even though I'm actually trying to live in a way that's pleasing to you, I still blow it. Look how short-tempered I was. Look at how self-centered I was. Look at how dishonest I was. Look at how whatever. Yes. Father, would you forgive me? Would you let that blood of Christ cleanse me once again from my sin? And would you again restore fellowship between you and me in such a way that I could actually be the man or the woman you want me to be? Yes. In fact, I delight in that. I delight in doing that for a believer as much as I delight in seeing a person who didn't know Jesus yet believe the gospel because you're being restored to my purpose. But notice what happens. When that happens, that you see your shortcomings and bring them to the Lord, and he deals with you mercifully, because that's what he's like, that's what he does, guess what it does? It makes you more likely when you talk to the next person to deal with them with mercy. That's what Jesus means when he says, deal with the beam so that then you can see to be able to help them remove the speck. It's because now you're marked by grace, just like he was. The the downflow of his grace to you becomes downflow of grace to them. But the downflow of his truth to you also becomes truth to them. Think about um, think about the the woman at the well in John four. In very short order, Jesus tells her everything she's ever done wrong. You've been married five times. The man you live with now isn't your husband. She responds very wisely, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. But what I love about that interaction is not only that Jesus let her know about her sin, let her know that he knew her sin, but that when she asks him about Messiah and he says, I who speak to you am he, she runs off to the town, and do you remember what she said to the town? Remember, this is a woman who, because of her bad reputation, would go get water at noon when no woman would do it. She would never want to be around where this townspeople could see her because she was so ashamed and people likely spoke ill of her all the time. And yet, when she went back to the townspeople, what does she say? Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be Messiah? In other words, she wasn't running from what she had done wrong. She was laying it out there for the people. Why? Because encountering the truth of Jesus, she also encountered his grace. And in encountering his grace, she realized this man is something different than what I thought Messiah would be. He sees right through me, but my goodness sakes, he offers such grace to me. Such that by the end of the story, the people are no longer castigating her like they apparently would have socially before. They say, we now believe in him, not because of your testimony, but because we've heard for ourselves. This woman has become an evangelist to the town. Why? Because she encountered the truth that drove right to the heart of her sin, but she found that his grace was greater still. And folks, that is precisely what's meant to happen when we talk with other people about their sin. They are meant to actually experience grace. Not that there's not truth, but that there's grace. Let me give you an example. 
say I'm a married woman. You know, you get to role play sometimes. I'm a married woman. I got two teenage kids. But I've noticed on repeated occasions that my son has been showing a bad attitude to me. He's been raising his voice. He's being sarcastic, disrespectful, rolling his eyes, marching off in a huff. I've tried to address it a time or two with him, but I've never gotten any improvement. So I'm wondering what I should do. And I'm asking the Lord, okay, Lord, how do I go about this? What is my role? What am I supposed to do? So I know that I'm not supposed to yell at him or engage in a fight with him because I'm a Christian and I spend some time reading the Bible and I've gotten in a small group and in my small group, I encounter things. It's amazing how we study something on Thursday night in our small group and then I can't tell you how many times what we studied on Thursday night actually pops up in my life in the next week. I don't know how that happens. Well, here she is in this position where she says, I remember Ephesians 4 tells us, put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. Well, that's exactly what I want to open up on my son. I want to bust him. I mean, I'm going to open up a can. But I know this is telling me don't do that. I also know I'm not supposed to hold resentment against him. Well, why? Because that same passage tells me, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Good grief, he's taking all the fun options. Because he's telling me, don't respond to his sin with your own version of sin. It just makes it worse. Well, what in the world do I do? So I'm wondering, Lord, what do I do? And it occurs to me, I haven't even involved my husband. I mean... Sometimes husbands have perspectives, I guess. So I'll ask him, what does he think? I'll ask him, I'm thinking about going, have you noticed the things that our son's been doing? Have you noticed the short lip, the, the attitude, the, the roll of the eyes, the disrespect? My husband says, yeah, yeah, I've, I've noticed that some. I've wondered what's going on. So... I tell my husband, I think I'm going to talk to him. I mean, I would involve you, but right now it's mainly been against me, so I'll start there. And if we need to go and involve you later, we can do it, but please pray for me. Sure, sure. You see, that's part of the preparation that I have to do before I can be ready, before I can know how to speak to him. Because Jesus has said, deal with the beam in your own eye. I'm going to ask my husband, have you seen anything I do that might stumble our son? Do I tend to interrupt him while he's in the middle of, he's playing a game and I say, right now I want you to go do X, Y, Z. And I just am just being arbitrarily pushy. Have you noticed that? Have you, have you noticed me kind of harp on him and dig on him or, or, or not? And the husband says, I really haven't. I haven't noticed you mistreat him in any way? I mean, I I don't see anything like that. So how do I go to him? You know, when Jesus went to people, he didn't hesitate to point out what was wrong. But unlike me, he's not like a Jewish mother. He doesn't tap his foot, fold his arms, and kind of tisk tisk wait until I change. Jesus makes his point and people are free to respond or not, and then he goes his way. He doesn't force righteousness on us. And so as this mom is trying to decide what to do, she 
remembers from her small group study, Ephesians 4.29. She has to look it up. She hadn't memorized it yet, but she runs across these words in Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it might give grace to those who hear. So there's a negative thing. The negative is don't let anything unwholesome come out of your mouth. No foul language, none. No condescending language, no name calling, none. No mockery or sarcasm meant to just dig, none. No worthless speech, that's what unwholesome is. It's it's words that accomplish no good end and it's just refuse. It's like after peeling cucumbers and carrots and other things for a salad and you look at it, yeah, you could put it in a compost, I suppose, but it's just kind of black, except for for rabbits. And this, those unwholesome words are like that. It's, It's something useless. What about the positive commands? First, only such a word is as good for edification. Sometimes when I go to people, I'm not thinking about edifying them. My natural instinct, if I'm going to go to somebody, is just to get them to quit doing something that bugs me or start doing something I want them to do. Well, if I do that, I'm not doing it for their good. I can't tell you how many times Diane has done this to me where I hate it when she does it, but it's so good for me, which makes it even worse. How many times when our kids were living at home, when I knew I needed to correct one of them, they had done something that was clearly out of line, and I knew I needed to speak to them, and I'd say, you know, they're not around, and I, she's preparing dinner, and I'm standing being useless in the kitchen with her, which is probably better than what I would have done if I'd tried to help, but I'm saying, I, I've got to talk to so-and-so. I mean, this is what they've done, and, and, and this is the thing, that, and, and, and I'm, I'm kind of walking through that thing like that. And she's kind of quiet, and she doesn't say much. And so I finally, I'm looking for a little affirmation. I'm kind of waiting for her to say, go after it. You got that right, and she doesn't. And I say, what's up? She says, I just don't trust it. Don't trust it? What does that mean? Are you saying I'm wrong? about what I think I've seen in this person? No. I haven't even gotten as far as whether I agree with you. I mean, I might agree with you about the content, but I just don't trust it. What does that mean, I don't trust it? Well, I don't think you're doing it for their good. What do you mean? Well, when you're talking about it, you're just really resentful of them. You're really... You're waiting. You can't wait to tell them what they've done. I just don't know that that's going to come from a place of love, but I'll leave that between you and the Lord. She's always smart enough to duck right at the point when I might really get defensive, you know. She, she's not going to take responsibility. She's not going to tell me to get a vaccine or not. You know, you can make the decision. I'm just going to give you my opinion. But but the thing is, she was right about that over and over that my heart was not in the right place for doing it. If, if, you, if you looked, for example, at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26, it says, uh, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, 
able to teach, patient when wronged, if perchance God might grant them repentance and lead them to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. But isn't it interesting that it says, not quarrelsome, right off the bat, well, when I'm loaded for bear talking to Diane, I'm obviously going to be in a quarrelsome mood. She knows that. And what's more, it says patient when wronged. Well, let me tell you, if I'm getting ready to go after them and I'm loaded for bear, I'm not going to be patient when wronged. I mean, they better, they better respond perfectly or they're going to get my ire. And what the Lord is saying is you're not prepared to be of any use to me. In fact, you'll be destructive in your own home. You'll be pulling the rafters down around your own head. That, um, that verse, Ephesians 4.29, no unwholesome words. It's meant to be for edification according to the need of the moment. In other words, you don't bring back four months of offenses or a three-year-old offense because that's not the need of the moment. What's the need of the moment? It's what's going on right now. It's what's going on right now. And the third positive command is that it might give grace to those who hear. That it might give grace to those who hear. Remember what I said earlier about the woman at the well. You, you think about the woman taking an adultery. When the woman taking an adultery, Jesus doesn't mince any words about the fact that she was taken in sin. I mean, we know because he says, go and sin no more. But we know that somehow that experience with him, she experienced grace. It, when you're bringing something to someone's attention and you're doing it for their good and you're doing it according to the need of the moment, it says that you would also do it in such a way that it might give grace to those who hear. The paralytic lowered through the roof. Remember what Jesus said before he told him to pick up his pallet and walk? Your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus never pulled back from acknowledging sin as sin. He was full of truth. It's just that he did it with remarkable grace because he knew he was going to go to the cross. He knew he was going to pay for every one of the offenses. And he wants us, when we go to people, to realize we are forgiven people. And that when we talk to them about an offense, we're to talk to them as forgiven people, not as self-righteous people, not as people who have arrived because we didn't do the thing they did. I'm that mom again. I know I need to talk to him. I knock on his door. It's about 9 p.m. I knock and I hear, what? He sounds a little irritated. Uh, Noah, it's me. May I come in? I'm doing homework. Well, may I still come in? Whatever. He's on his bed with his computer and what looks like an English book. What you up to? Just writing a stupid essay for English. What do you need? Noah, if right now is not the time to talk, I'm willing to find another time in the next day or two. But I want to do it sometime at a close enough. 
uh, because we need to talk. There's something been going on between you and me, and we need to address it. What have I done now? Uh, Noah, um, I want to talk about this when you're ready and when I'm ready. And if right now your mind is on your essay, I'd rather you take care of that. We'll find another time. You, you let me know what's good, and we'll find something the next two days. No, now you've bothered me. He puts the computer aside. You've already interrupted me. I'm not going to sit around for three days wondering what I did wrong now. Go ahead. So I pull a desk chair up a few feet from his bed and sit down. Have you got anything against me that I don't know about? I ask. What? What do you mean, something against you? I say, well, you've just been really short over the last two or three weeks. You've been kind of sharp-tongued and really difficult to get along with. What do you mean short? Well, um, you act like any time I talk with you, it's a burden to you. You seem bugged if I say anything at all. Well, I didn't mean anything by it. I'm sorry, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Well, do you feel it? Do you feel kind of a resentment towards me? Do you feel kind of a hostility towards me? Because that's what I'm seeing. I don't know. I just feel a lot of pressure all the time right now. I barely have time to run after school. My times have been showing it. I've got so much homework this year, and now I'm supposed to start looking at colleges because I've only got another year of high school after this. I never have time. Now, we could go on. I'm going to stop the interaction right now because the main point is to realize that if I'm going to talk with you about an area of shortcoming, I need to do it with a preparation of my own heart. Because if I'm just lambasting you because you have really bugged me, I'm not doing anything for your good. Even if I'm accurate about what I'm saying. And if what Jesus does to me and is in his life is meant to flow into me and flow over to others, this is what it looks like. But remember that last verse I read at the very beginning. I'm going to read it again here. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. You see, even if you prepare yourself well, there's no guarantee you're going to get a good response. Sometimes people just harden their heart. And so if this same boy, now I'm not saying that what Noah has done so far is good, and there could be a lot of room for more discussion, and maybe there would be a restoration between he and his mom that night, maybe not, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't written that, so I don't know. But imagine he had been even worse Imagine he had, as soon as she brought it up, he says, you just expect perfection out of me. I get so sick of this house. I just want to be out of here. I'm just, you, like you never have a bad day. Well, if, if he's obviously pushing away every representation of truth, and he's not open to the conversation, this verse in 6 would say, don't cast that which is precious to a dog or a pig. Your words are actually life for them. They're good, but they're rejecting them. 
don't go forcing it down them. And it depends on the relationship. It depends on the circumstances of what you do. But one of the things you sometimes do is bring someone else. If you happen to be married and you're a parent doing this, you might bring the other parent. And you say to him, look, uh, we'll find another time when it's better to talk and your dad and I will talk together because uh, we'll come back and revisit this. Yeah, I bet you will. And your goal then is to somehow hope that between the two of you praying together and working together, you can work through this with no guarantee that even if you do it well, it will. But many, many times it does. And if you've never done that successfully, that doesn't mean you can. If you both know Christ, you both have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you can seek his word, you can pray together, and you can ask God, give me wisdom. In fact, there are two books that are really good on this. If you want to read it and kind of learn a better way, maybe, than what you've done in the past, one of them is the book... Uh, um, resolving Everyday Conflict. Little bitty book. Really good. Uh, really good book. Resolving Everyday Conflict. It's just got so much that teaches you about how to deal with your own beam in your eye, how to use conflict for good, how to do a lot of the things that we're talking about. Or a brand new book. Just, I think it just got released this week by Carolyn Neuheiser. Uh, when Words Matter Most, Speaking Truth with Grace to Those You Love. This might be two books that could actually be helpful. But, but the point in all of this is when an offense is too much to overlook, when it is damaging to the relationship or damaging to the person, when the sin is such that you can't just leave it with the Lord, there's a need to address it. There are ways to do it. And it's meant to be the way Jesus does it. And it's meant to be the way Jesus teaches it. And it's meant to be an overflow of his truth and grace into your life down to theirs. My prayer is that we can all get better at this, better at pursuing peace, and better at doing the difficult work of attempting to address those shortcomings and difficulties that we experience with relationships, especially with those we love. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you have loved us when we were far away, when we were your enemies, you loved us, when we were living entirely to the neglect of your purposes, you bore our sins on the tree, and you invited us to trust you. You invited us to believe an offer of eternal life to all who believe, and you made us new people, and you gave us the Holy Spirit. And you began actually showing us how to apply the Bible in our lives. Father, in that process, I know you want to make me more like Christ. And I want to thank you for the role Diane's had and the role hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in this church have had in my life over the last 28 years. How they have shaped me. How they have been an example to me. And I just want to thank you for the fact that you're the kind of God who uses the body of Christ to help us understand and to apply what you have written. We love you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.